Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK, coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, Clive Thompson's new book, Coders, offers insight into the people behind the ones and zeros of our digital world. It can be very tempting to sort of ignore, you know, the effect the code is having in the world around you because you're just heads down on solving that problem. You're like a machinist working on the engine, just and you just want to hear the engine start humming. And then the crew talks about what some people are calling the most hated movie in America. And no, we're not talking about the new Mel Gibson movie. I'm like, one, it's called Locusia. Why were they two E's? They tried it. Second, it was like saying it was in select theaters in the summer, like in July. I'm like, who thought this was a good idea? It shouldn't even made it past pre-production. Jeff Dean is a legend. He's so revered that his colleagues trade Jeff Dean facts, like Chuck Norris facts, but nerdier. One such fact, the speed of light in a vacuum used to be about 35 miles per hour. Then Jeff Dean spent a weekend optimizing physics. The work he's done as a top programmer at Google has absolutely touched your life and indeed shaped the world as we know it. But unless you read that one New Yorker profile about him and his coding buddy Sanjay Gemawat, you've probably never heard of Jeff Dean or any of the other programmers responsible for the software that, at this point, we kind of can't live without. Our next guest has set out to fix that in his new book, Coders, The Making of a New Tribe and the Remaking of the World. We want to welcome Clive Thompson to Woman 2 bk Hi. Thanks so much for coming on the show. No, I'm glad to be here. So um, you write about how there are different eras throughout civilization where people who are in one particular industry have an outsized impact. And you talk a little bit about how post-war this was architects and urban planners, and that right now we're in the age of coders. Talk to me a little bit about how you arrived at that conclusion. Sure. Well, I've been writing about technology for about 20 years. And for, I think, maybe the first 15 years, I was sort of just convincing people that, hey, all this software stuff and this internet stuff is going to be consequential for your life. Um, And I began to realize about five or six years ago that that argument I don't need to make anymore. Everyone has a phone. Everyone checks the first thing they get up in the morning. They all understand that the way that they learn things is brokered through Facebook, and the way they buy things is brokered through Amazon. So they they get the idea that software is involved in all the decisions they make all day long. But I realized that most people have no idea how software is made. Uh, You know, they have these visions they might have seen in a TV show or a Hollywood movie of like a hacker sitting there and sort of typing madly, but it's a complete mystery. And so I wanted to peel back a bit of that mystery and get a sense of what's going on in the priorities and the passions of these people who are making this incredibly important stuff for our everyday lives. And for people who may not be familiar with how you get a computer to do something you want it to do, (laughs) can you just very basically talk to me about computer programming and how that is? Yeah. All it is is figuring out something you want the computer to do and breaking it down into incredibly small, specific tasks, one after another, after another, like almost like writing a recipe for someone to make eggs, except you have to explain what a stove is and what fire is and what a spoon is, right? You have to be that granular and that specific. And the art of programming is being able to think so logically about the flow without missing a single step and also being incredibly precise. Because if you get like even a single semicolon wrong, the computer will not execute those commands. It's not like talking to a person where, you know, you and I talk, and if I, if I kind of say something a little fuzzy, 
you'll be able to figure it out. The computer needs you to be absolutely, completely precise with every single instruction. It's a rigid taskmaster. And absolutely. you write that one developer said that working with computers all day long is like being forced to share an office with a toxic, abusive colleague. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what this can do to a person when all day they're interacting with a machine that demands absolute precision at all times. There's nothing more frustrating you can do with your life, I think, than try and program a computer because of exactly what we just talked about. Every time you get something wrong, it doesn't work. Every time um, something you're doing conflicts with something someone else is doing, it doesn't work. And so um, it's actually someone sitting there staring in bafflement at the screen at code that doesn't work. Stuff they wrote five minutes ago already doesn't work. More than anything else, I think you have to be able to endure unbelievably grinding levels of frustration. Right. How do you deal with failure? So you talk about how it requires a particular type of person, a particular type of mindset. Mm -hmm. But I think that as coding has changed and ha as it's touched more areas of our world, the stereotype about who a programmer is has really changed as well. Um, right now we talk about, you know, the programmers who have taken over San Francisco. But, you know, when I was growing up, we were thinking more about D&D &D playing dudes with long hair. Um, so you go through sort of like four different stages of programming and the people who became programmers in your book. Can you just quickly walk me through that? Sure, yeah. I mean, the very first phase of programming was back in the 50s and 60s. And computers were the size of a room. And no one had done any programming before. There was no courses to take. There was no way to learn it. So they hired anyone who seemed like they were good at logic. They would literally put ads in the paper saying, you know, do you like to play chess and do crossword puzzles? And if you answered yes, and you could pass a basic logic test, they hired you, and they would train you on the job. And what was really interesting was that it was an extremely open door for women, uh, something on the order of 27% of all programmers in 1960 working in the job were women, which is a percentage that's actually higher than today. Wow. Yeah. You uh -huh. write about one such woman who walks into MIT and is like, hi, I heard that you were hiring computer programs. Yeah. and they were like, you're hired. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Imagine how gutsy that was, right? But that's how open that, that door was. It was kind of this fun moment. In fact, I just met a few other women the other day who did the same thing. Uh, they graduated and they just said, I think I want to be a programmer, and IBM and you know, was happy to hire them. So that was the first wave, and that lasted for you know, a good 10 or 15 years. And then the second wave that starts to happen is in the 70s, when you begin to see, um, this is kind of more the stereotype of the disheveled young man who's just, you know, you know, in a union with the computer. These were the sort of the quote-unquote hackers that emerged at places like MIT. Computers got smaller, a little smaller, like maybe the size of a desk, and you could work on them, you know, just one person in, in union. And at this point, have keyboards and monitors yes. been introduced? Yeah, they've got keyboards and monitors, mm -hmm. and, um, and so it's kind of exciting because you can type something and see the result right away. And these guys would, would go to the AI lab at MIT and work in the wee hours when no one was using the computers. And they would use them for, like, playful, funny things, right? Like making video games or generating music. And they sort of, they were the first bunch of people to think that computers could be used for these whimsical and cultural reasons and not just to calculate payroll for a company, right? So that was kind of the, this interesting moment when computers began to be wrested away from the large corporate and institutional reasons for these kind of playful, fun things that we now do with computers all day long. And this second generation, there's sort of like an anti-authoritarian streak, mm -hmm. uh, a belief in open source code. Yeah. Yeah, they were they they believed that no one should really own the code they write, that it should just be knowledge that's shared with anyone. And so they had this sort of very anti-corporate stance that was actually kind of interesting and unusual. The corporate world at this point in time was was realizing 
even as they hired a lot of coders, that a lot of them were these kind of young men that were a little countercultural, and they wore sandals, and they had beards, and that felt really strange in 1970s and 80s America. Also, you just described Jesus for what that's I worth. just described Jesus, yeah. exactly. Uh, um, so, so that was the second wave, and the third wave is the one that I myself participated in, because um, I, I was a teenager in the 1980s, and that's when you got the first kind of home computers that you could plug into a TV, like the Commodore 64 or the, or the you know, the TRS-80. And so what started happening was that you could just sort of stumble into learning computer programming accidentally. You show up at a friend's house and they've got a computer and you type, you know, 10 print Clive, 20 go to 10, and the screen fills up with Clives. And I did this and it was an incredibly intoxicating feeling because you're a teenager and you're able to command this machine that can do these, these magical things over and over again. You have no control about how late you can stay out at yeah. night and yet you can create a computer program to, to do whatever you want. Exactly right, yeah. It, it's a feeling of control that a lot of 13 year olds don't get, right? And so that was a really interesting moment because suddenly all these teenage kids, they were mostly boys, were able just to sort of discover a computer programming and discover that they loved it without anyone being a gatekeeper, no institution. You didn't have to go to MIT. You didn't have to go to a company to get access to a computer. And this, this really actually exploded out, uh, I think. It, it was kind of the Cambrian explosion of coding from being a, a smaller number of people to a much, much larger number of people. Again, still mostly boys at that point in time because it was the 1980s and the girls were steered toward the girl toys and the boys were steered towards the boy toys. So, uh, you know, I, I was doing that coding back then and there were not a lot of girls doing it, right? But I could, I could sort of get a sense that these these computers were interesting things, but if you'd asked me or anyone back then, why are you doing this? We didn't think it was gonna change the world, we just thought it was fun. We thought it was like making games or making little chatbots to insult our friends and whatnot, you know? But along the way, you created a generation of people that went off to create Netscape and to work for Microsoft and to create you know, Microsoft Word and all these amazing huge pieces of software they accidentally learned program, programming, and they accidentally later became millionaires. Mm -hmm. And the fourth generation that comes after them is much more intentional, and um, perhaps in it for the same reasons that somebody might be interested in going to Goldman Sachs after they graduate, correct? Yeah. By the time the 90s and the early aughts roll around, you've got what is kind of the current wave, I guess, of programmers, where some of them are learning it because they've realized there's millions of dollars here, right? And so they go to computer science program, they flood into computer science programs, and they go off to make a lot of money, and they go to Silicon Valley knowing they can make a lot of money. Uh, there's also a whole bunch of kind of just cultural weirdos who, you know, made websites for their friends' bands and began to realize that they really liked you know, this act of telling computers what to do and being able to put something online and have thousands or millions of people use it is a really intoxicating feeling. So the scale of ambition becomes much larger. You get people like Mark Zuckerberg who understood from the outset that he was making Facebook not just for college students, but for something that was eventually gonna swallow the entire planet. Talk to me about this scale of ambition. Do some programmers, the ones who are thinking on very big scales, do they have sort of a God complex? I think every programmer on some level has a God complex because they're commanding a universe. And there is this thrill of feeling it come to life that feels very Promethean. Uh, what starts to happen when the marketplace comes in and venture capital comes in, it really does create a sense of um, overconfidence in your own abilities. You know, Once you make something that gets used by a few million people, you start thinking that, wow, you could solve any problem. You know, I broke, I broke this interesting problem down uh, into a few steps, and I made software, and now everyone's using it. And you start thinking that that logical process 
by which you make software could be used to solve any problem. It could be used to solve education. It could be used to solve, you know, social problems. And sort of that, that's, that often gets a lot of people in Silicon Valley into trouble, right? Because they, they, they think that wicked social problems are as simple as fairly linear computer science problems. Mark Zuckerberg famously gave hundreds of millions of dollars to schools in New Jersey and got absolutely nothing out of it because right. he didn't understand how complex it is to actually change educational policy. It seems almost like a conflict that you talk about in the book, where on the one hand, there's a hacker ethos of fuck it, ship it, move fast and break things. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, coders are writing lines of code that future generations will have to be able to come back to and fix or build on. So can you talk a little bit sure. about that? I mean, there is this, there is this fun uh, feeling of quickly iterating things and making things happen that uh, very much is the ethos of Silicon Valley and, and is to a certain extent the ethos of all coding. I mean, I do enough coding in my everyday life and I'm just like, I just need to solve this problem quickly. It doesn't have to be beautiful. I just need to make it happen. And I think where this causes problems is a lot of people don't even necessarily know or expect that the code they've written is going to suddenly be used by people. So stuff they did quickly and sloppily now needs to be cleaned up. And it's like trying to rebuild an airplane as you fly through the air. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the chapter where you discuss AI. You have this story about cucumbers, about a Japanese programmer who wrote um, code to to help sort cucumbers. Can you talk to me a little bit about this? And it seems like a very um, hopeful story, like amazing. We're gonna help farmers do less drudge work <coughs> right. and spend more time doing important things. Uh, but of course, there are there's a dark undertone to it. That, uh, that story is in one sense a tribute to how easy AI has become, right? So it used to be very hard to get computers to learn things on their own. Uh, and then a series of breakthroughs that began about 10 years ago uh, in what's known as neural nets deep learning. Pretty much anyone can download some code that uh, comes from a place like Google or a place like Facebook, and they can start training a neural net. You could take like a bunch of coffee mugs and take pictures of a thousand of them and train this thing to be able to recognize coffee mugs. And you know, you don't necessarily even have to know a whole lot about how that code works. And so I chatted with this, this, this young guy in Japan who did just that. He went back to work on his family's cucumber farm, and they spent a huge amount of time sorting their cucumbers. There are ones that have these very nice, thick, thorny bristles on them that, are, that, are, that everyone loves. And there's ones that don't look as good. And his mother would spend hours and hours and hours sorting these cucumbers. Into nine different categories. Nine different categories. Nine of types cucumber of categories. excellence. Exactly, yeah. And so he thought, well, let me see if I can get it to visually recognize these. And he did a pretty good job. He created something that was trained on thousands of pictures of cucumbers and can now recognize them and sort of shove the ones in the right place. So that's an example of how weirdly easy it has become to wield um, this very powerful form of AI. And the problem is, is that because it's gotten easier, everyone is doing it. And they're doing it in places that have a lot higher stakes than sorting cucumbers, right? They're doing it, say, with mortgages. Who gets a mortgage? Who doesn't? They're doing it with sentencing guidelines. You know, who should be recommended for a harsh sentence and who should not? Uh, they're doing it with um, visual recognition. You know, uh, can we recognize these people? And they're discovering that, wow, they can't recognize black faces in America. Right. And why is that? Well, because... All these uh, neural nets are just trained. They're, they're just taught over and over again by looking at Based things. Based on existing data sets. Existing data. And if that data doesn't have a lot of black people in it, then you're not going to have 
the ability to recognize African Americans. And this is exactly what happened disastrously with Google, where a um, coder here in Brooklyn, actually, an African American coder, was having his Google um, software sort his pictures and automatically label them. And it would go, you know, this is a, a picture of a bicycle, this is a picture of a plane. It looked at a picture of him and a friend who's also African American, and it labeled them gorillas, right? And that's because uh, it had uh, not seen anywhere near enough. African-American faces to be able to disambiguate them. It had made this unbelievably, horrifyingly racist classification that literally echoes some of the worst racism in, uh, in, in American history, right? Um, there's another crazy story that I, I happened upon where this coder was trying to uh, use a neural net to automatically classify Yelp reviews, right? To try and figure out, were they positive, were they negative? And what she discovered was that, for some reason, all the Mexican restaurants were getting slightly lower rankings than everything else. And she couldn't figure out why, because when she actually went in and looked at the reviews, they seemed just as positive as for Italian restaurants or Chinese restaurants. Presumably people like Mexican food as much as Italian yes, food. Yes, exactly. The problem was that it had been trained on language from Google News. And Google News contains lots and lots of racist stories about how bad Mexicans are, right? You know, these uh, nativist stories or reflecting or reporting upon native, nativist ideas about Mexicans as invading the country. So there's this negative sentiment built into the way that, that stories in the news represent Mexicans. And this gets sort of distilled into new racism by an, a neural net that essentially is just trying to recognize patterns in the world. You know, as she said, said to me, you know, if you train it on racism, it's going to learn racism. Right. She discovered that the word Mexican is net negative. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And they also discovered other things that, you know, if you train it again on the basic uses of language, it will pick up sexism. It will correlate woman to housekeeper and man to computer programmer, right? Ironic. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like coders have a moral obligation to correct for our societal biases? Or on the other hand, do you feel that they have a moral obligation to mm -hmm, yeah. just reflect reality right. no matter how ugly it is? I do think coders have a moral responsibility to correct injustices wherever they see them. In the same way that I think anyone who's working in any job category has an ethical and moral responsibility to society. If you're a doctor, if you are a police officer, if you're a journalist, if you uh, work in any area, if you see injustice, it's your job, particularly if you have the ability, if you're empowered to do it, to fix things. One of the things a lot of coders told me is that because the job is very technical and because it's very thrilling just to sort of get something working, uh, it can be very tempting to sort of ignore the effect the code is having in the world around you because you're just heads down on solving that problem. You're like a machinist working on the engine just, and you just want to hear the engine start humming. You don't think about what someone's going to use that car for or whether it's going to be a truck or whether it's going to be a tank, right? And so this is, this is a long-standing problem to a certain extent with all engineering. There's always been a challenge in what are the uses of the tools you're going to be put to and whether or not you care about it. One computer scientist was reflecting on this, uh, and I spoke to him. He wrote a paper where he thought about the, the moral nature of encryption code. And he was thinking about how physicists in the early 20th century, before the atom bomb, were very much sort of like coders. They, they were just interested in solving the problems of the atom. They, were, they were just had heads down, and they were thinking, you know, how do we, how do we figure out how the molecule works, how, how atoms work? And they did this great work, and it led to the atom bomb. And afterwards, they had a kind of a moral reckoning where they began to realize, wow, our discipline actually has stakes. And what this computer scientist told me is that he's noticed over the years that physics departments are actually more politically active and politically aware than many other departments because they had this moral moment. And what he said is, 
I don't think computer science has had that yet. It hasn't had the moment where um, en masse it has said, wow, we wield an enormous amount of power and we need to think about it. I think that's super interesting because so much of the tech industry as we know it today is built on this idea of disruption. We're going to change the status quo. We're <clears> going to burn it all down and we're going to remake it into a more efficient mode. Um, but then you have things like Lyft and Uber strike. That's right. Um, in advance of uh, Lyft and Uber are going public this year, I believe. Mm, and right. the drivers are saying, oh, well, it's really great that all of the coders and business people behind Uber are about to be super wealthy. Meanwhile, I'm having a really hard time feeding my family and I work two jobs. Um, so mm -hmm. it, it's very interesting to me where where there is that intersection sure. between... I mean, uh, the vast uh, majority of really successful software-based companies all have one trick. They take something that was being done slowly or inefficiently and they make it really efficient. Because computers are amazing at doing rote repetitive tasks. They're really good at automating uh, you know, scut work. They're really good at finding connections and patterns. And so over and over again, that's something that the, the free market, you know, lavishly rewards, right? Now, I think what started to happen is that a bunch of these software companies have wound up creating efficiencies that turn out to have some problematic side effects, right? I mean, Uber and Lyft, when you think about it, are a classic optimization efficiency ploy. Uh, they looked at the status of car hailing, and they said, wait a minute, this is this is insanely inefficient. The cars don't know where the people are, and the people don't know where the cars are. And they solved that, and, and they actually did a great job for you know me, the rider, right? It's way easier for me to get a car now. But they had the side effect, and this wasn't obvious for some years, that it was gonna seriously degrade the ability of drivers to make a living, because you know, sure, they made it more efficient for the riders, but they made it much easier to flood the streets with tons of competition. Right. So it's really easy to make a living as a part-time driver for Uber. It's very hard to make a living as a full-time driver. And this has, of course, for a city like New York City or any city, has catastrophic consequences for, say, the status of immigrants who traditionally would use driving a cab as a way into the middle class. Mm -hmm. So you can you can solve this amazing efficiency problem for customers, but then cause a problem for cities, you know? Right. I'll close out with one final question. What is your favorite coding-related film? You oh mentioned boy. sort of these, like, yeah, you know, sure. code flying by as people are furiously typing on keyboards. Do you yeah. have one that, that speaks deeply to you? You know, um, in, in some respects, I really like, and this is this is this is going to seem kind of silly because it's just it's such a funny caper movie. But um, I still like Sneakers with uh, um, Robert Redford, where and he did that back in the '90s uh, because it was the first and I think maybe only time I've seen someone do what they call um, pen testing or penetration testing, where your job is to try and break into a computer system. You're paid by a company to say, break into our computer system and let me know what you find. It was a, like a more minor thing back in the 90s when he made that movie. Now it's a massive thriving industry, sure. right? I mean, like I could, if I wanted to this weekend, I could go and sign up at hackerone.com just to do pen testing like in my spare time. And if I happen to break into a company, I get a couple thousand dollars. And Google hands out bug bounties where if you discover a bug in their programs, they'll pay you thousands of dollars to let them know. So one of the things I love about that film is that they how how in God's name they decided to take pen testing and turn it into the plot of a movie. I have no idea <laughs> in the 90s. It's the nerdiest thing imaginable, yeah. and they completely pulled it you off. You can make a movie about anything. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Clive. Appreciate your coming on the show. I had a lot of fun.
The crew is back, and guess what? We're mad about something new. And we're not alone. It's being called the movie America Hates Most, LaQuisha. For those who haven't heard about this gem, it's basically a mashup of Soul Man, Just One of the Guys, and Tootsie. We convened the crew to ask, what the fuck? Welcome back, you guys. Um, let's maybe have you guys introduce yourselves. We'll start with you, Sasha. Hi, Sasha. Um, Gemini Cancer Cusp for Virgo Rising. Um, yeah, I'm the content director. Content director. Great. Naeem? I'm Naeem. I am a production assistant for the show. A new face on the crew, but not a new face on the crew, if that makes sense. <laughs> I'm Isabella. I'm the associate producer. All right. So if people have not seen the atrocious trailer for Loquisha, I'm going to recommend they don't because it's enraging and let's not give them the views. But maybe we can talk a little bit about the plot of this piece of uh, cinematic genius. So, yeah, this uh, bumbling white guy wants a radio show. Everyone wants Everyone a podcast. Wants a yeah. But he deserves it. That's oh, right. He has a lot to say, and people in his community think that he gives great advice. Right. Yeah. Um, but sees some sort of weird printed out, like typewriter written ad uh, suggesting that minorities and women should apply for right. this he, job that he, he wants. He does apply for his own radio show, and he gets turned down. Okay. And he thinks that this is because he is a white guy. He's a white guy. Then he gets this bright idea. He's watching this show with these two women talking, and the sign of the show is called Trash Talking. And he basically gets this idea that he's going to masquerade as a black woman because he'd actually reach more people with the show, but then you have him in the next clip, well, I'm, I haven't seen the full trailer, but you just see him talking into a mic, rolling his neck, and it was just like, Jeremy, have a couple seats. It was just too much. <laughs> so the, the whole plot of this film is that he puts on black voice yeah, uh, instead right. of blackface in order to be a call-in radio show host named LaQuisha, and that he ends up helping a broad number of people while he's pretending to be a black woman. All kinds of people, like elderly people, white people, <laughs> other elderly white people. <laughs> there does seem, the, the trailer ends with a woman who is suicidal, and she's on a bridge and says, I'm about to jump, and he says, have a nice jump, baby, or something like that. Yeah. All right, guys, why is this? Oh, so dumb. Why am I even asking this? Why is this film problematic? Oh, my <laughs> God. Why is this film happening? That's the question, truly. Right, right. Truly now, is how did it make you feel? First of all, it, it was funny because when I first watched the trailer, I was like, this isn't real, right? Because I, I found out about it on Twitter. I'm like, one, it's called Loquisha. Why were there two E's? They tried it. Second... <laughs> It was like saying it was in select theaters in the summer, like in July. I'm like, oh, he fucking who wishes. Thought, who thought? Mm. Who thought this was a good idea? It shouldn't even made it past pre-production. No, oh. it's in a select yeah. theater, which is like you know his surround sound, state of the art home theater. Yeah. Like he, this so this, select it, that no one has access to it. <laughs> right. And didn't isn't didn't he like misrepresent a festival? Yes. Run yes. That it's having the as San, well. The San Luis Obispo International Film Festival. They had had the crest that said, "Oh, official selection." Right. And yes, they were like selected, but then they got pulled and replaced by another film. Mm -hmm. So they got wind. They have minds. <laughs> oh my so God. Who programmed them and initially it, though? Yeah. Like who was the program really who was question. like, you know really what film question. really deserves a slot at this film festival? My white sons. <laughs> <laughs> so um, IIMD beat him as well. And so he is multi-talented. He is an actor, a director, and a writer. Um, his other film is called The Test. It's from 2012. This seems to be a film about a man who puts his fiance through an increasingly bizarre series of stress tests to see if she's worthy 
of marrying him. One of them from the trailer looks like he sets her up to potentially cheat on him. Um, so um, he also, he sets someone up to rob them in their house. Yeah, with so. like and point a gun at her. And is she supposed to stop the uh, robbery? I don't. I, I think. I think maybe the test is like, is she overly stressed? About this about robbery, being he, home he wants yeah. her to take a bullet for him. Oh, cool, cool, cool. So yeah, there don't seem to be any problems yeah, any with problems misogyny there. in this film. No. At I bet mean, he's a great guy. So it's just yeah. not black women he's trolling. He's trolling every woman, basically, is yeah. what you're telling me. So one of the things that he said, I don't know if you guys have heard this, is um, I don't know why everyone's so worked up. This is basically just white chicks. Sure. Right, and then, and then and then he, he tweeted sure. a picture of himself with one of the writers of What Chick. Yeah, like, Marlon Wayans. So, yeah, oh, and right, right, as right. sort of like it's sort of like an like I know an a black guy as an yeah. endorsement. Hey, Loquisha, at Loquisha, meet at White Chicks, and then you even got Marlon Wayans tweeting basically. I hate when people tag me in their bullshit. It's annoying <laughs> as fuck. So even he wasn't with the shit. So I'm just like, really? Yeah, Naeem, Nobody why is this not like white chicks? And it's so funny that you asked me that question because I think we talked about this a little bit yesterday. We had a comedian on the show one time and they were talking about how like when it comes to jokes and sensitive topics, there's such a thing as punching up and punching down. Punching up meaning, you know, making, I don't want to say making light of it, but it's turning it weirdly into a positive spin and turning down is like kind of punching down is like belittling, degrading. White chicks, you didn't they didn't make the white women like, oh, white women are devils or they're slutty. Like they just made them a little silly. Maybe it could be deemed as like a stereotype. But then you got Jeremy, you got this film, him trying to masquerade as a black woman, written and directed by a white cisgendered man, and it's getting all this publicity. When you got other films by other black women directors and writers. Being on yeah. that have no publicity, Absolutely. so it's just like you even like for example, there were the two films. There was um, Fast Color about this like multi generational family of black women that have superpowers. Who the hell don't want to see that? Sign that me was, up. That yeah. was written by um, a woman, um, written and directed by Julia Hart, but it was actually written by her and her husband. That barely had what five six days in the theaters. Oh, was yeah. that and programmed got, at the San Luis Obispo Film Festival? No, you know all. it wasn't. And then you have this other film, Little Woods, that was um, written and directed by Nia DaCosta, yes. which was amazing. So but again, it only really had select theaters and like this next. Places and no theaters you walk past. no publicity. There's no poster of it. There's nothing on the side of the bus. And this like garbage fire trailer right. is everywhere. So yeah. I have a question for you guys. There's no black face in the movie from what I can tell. This is not Soul Man, as we right. reference. Um, but it is black voice. Yeah. Do you find that as equally problematic as blackface? No, 100%. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a portrayal. It's a caricature portrayal yes. of a race. And, no, and the idea is that it's over the radio, so your mind is conjuring the face of this person that allegedly has this voice. It's the same. The, the effect is the same. And this is the same conversation that we had when Gucci had those shoes, and then there was that mask, sweater There's thing, and it's just the, the, all of, it's just the same shit where no one ever understands the lesson on blackface. There's I feel like he was just to trying to be edgy, and it just missed the mark completely. Completely. <laughs> it's just I don't even think, I mean, I guess he's trying to be edgy, but it's obvious that his personal politics are super conservative, right? Like, it shows this ad where it says, minorities and black women in particular are encouraged to apply. And you can just see it oozing into the film that he thinks that that's bullshit, that right. affirmative action has right. no place, and that this white man can do uh, as good or a better job of, as a minority and should be taken taken at his own face right. value. <sighs> Yeah. Which just... also, like, yeah, I think that's, like, 
to me, like watching is the funniest thing is just like the idea. Like I, you know, there's a whole other affirmative action conversation um, that comes up in this, but like the idea that it's easier for a black woman to get a job in radio than a white man is the funniest, goofiest, like <laughs> farthest from the truth. Like that's the joke. like that's the that's premise the of the no, movie. Are you kidding? No, me? but honestly, like, it's just like so. He needs help from someone of color to get a gig, like because he needed money to pay for his kid's school. He couldn't cheat like Lori and whatever her name is. I'm like, <laughs> honestly, right? That's the catalyst that he has to come up with thirteen thousand dollars a semester right. for his kid's private school. Well, the movie would end if his wife was just like, "Well, we gotta send our kid to public school." Right. Roll credits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you think this is feeding into? I do wonder if this film is just going to die a quick death or if it's going to be picked up now by all sorts of conservative film festivals, right? Oh, what do you, sure what type of current sentiment among white American men do you think this is playing into? I mean, I think it's the, the normal sentiment that oh, has the, allowed... The misogyny, the, yeah. the anti-blackness. It's allowed. The commodifying of black bodies, Everything. black culture, all of that. Yeah. It's just you're using exactly. as to be marketable. It's like so many things. It's like they want to be black, but they don't want to be black. Yeah. It's just that same sentiment. That's exactly right. what it is. Yeah, like creating a safe yeah. space to parade around as somebody else and I while think still that, maintaining your power. So like Coachella? Like, yeah. I don't know. Like <laughs> I anything. think another element that's super distressing is the fact that when you look at black female representations in film, dating back to the beginning of film, there was like one role for black women, right? Mm -hmm. And we have since diversified that to maybe there being like three roles. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, with the rise of like black directors, we're seeing more nuanced portrayals mm -hmm. of black characters and that this fucking white dude right. comes back and he creates this trope of a sassy black woman exactly. who's like dishing out hard truths in a way that is so offensive yeah. and unidimensional. And then you have other women in the film, the one girl in the car talking about, you go girl, trying oh to rationalize yeah. that whole thing. And then you have the one woman talking about, oh, that Loquisha's a real role model for every African-American <laughs> woman in in the country in the or country. in the arts, something like that. I'm just like, are you serious? Like, who in their, I'm sorry, who in their right mind, a person of color, read the tagline for this movie and was like, oh, I'm going to get this role. This is going to be my breakout hit. No. There are a lot no. of black people in this yeah. film. Talk to me about your feelings around that. And it, it's so funny because there's a guy who's casted in the film who happens to be black. He's a comedian. And he made, he defended the film. And I was just like, really? What Let did he say? It. He said, if anyone is offended, I'm very sorry. I wasn't trying to make anything that was a mockery. In fact, I don't think the trailer does the movie any justice. This is a comedy about a guy who does the wrong thing for the right reasons, and the movie really gets into all of it more than the trailer does. If you don't plan to see the movie, I respect that, but I think you have to withhold judgment until you see the movie. But again, making a mockery wasn't my intention. Watching the trailer, I feel like I kept trying to turn it like, oh, what if they did this? Or maybe trying to spin it in a positive direction that didn't involve him being a white savior. Like, it was... Right. There a really white was savior no black other face. way. Yeah. There really was exactly. no other way to turn it yeah. to make it good no. or make it, it worthwhile. It is very telling that, like, in the trailer, you both get the, like, I'm doing this to, like, reach a larger audience and help people. But, like, very clearly, he's doing it to make money. And that's just, like... 
another mask that he right, gets right. to wear. But, but it, yeah, because but, but of it's power. in in the trailer, right? right. He's like, I need like thirteen thousand dollars a semester. Yeah. But also, I want to help people. Yeah, exactly. But you, you also can't can say it's a perfect storm. You're a white liberal. Yeah, <laughs> you can say that you want to do the right I thing. I mean, I also feel really bad for the people of color who ended up in this film, right? Because like, look, they're working, struggling right, actors. People need jobs. People need jobs, and they're isn't a wealth of complex, juicy, meaty roles for actors of color. I understand your viewpoint and like, you know, it's a job, I'm a storyteller and whatever, but I can't help but feel that if someone were to do that, I know for a fact my family would think I'm a sellout. Of course. And honestly, and then it even just makes me think about just the roles that actors choose. Like you have a choice. You got people like Ridley Scott hosting white, who casting white people as Egyptians. Like they're African, are you kidding me? (laughs) And they had a choice. Yeah. They had a choice. So I'm like, everyone has a choice. They could have picked far more better roles. It still would have been low budget, but it still would have been a better story to tell, honestly. I'm looking at you, Scarlett Johansson. You have a choice to say no. Big time. It's like you have a choice and should always do the right thing and, like, represent yourself and your community the right way. But, like, also if you're, like, trying to make a name for yourself, it's unfortunately like a good tactic is to do something really outrageous and disrespectful and now everyone's like, talking about you're you. You're in the IMDb and credits. That's going like, to be I'm there sure forever. I'm sure this guy will get, but I'm sure the writer director of this will get work or like a hosting gig oh, or like there's, yeah. Oh, he's definitely going to get like a conservative radio show. I'm sure he's already show. a 4chan celebrity. Yeah, yeah like it's, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Maybe sure. I'll close out by asking a sort of larger ideological question and you all can answer it. Do you think that people are allowed to tell the stories of communities that they don't belong to? That's a really good question. And I I mean, like, as a gay person, seeing all media, most media that represents me being made by straight people, because that's the dominant orientation of whoever's making most of the media, um, I'd say there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that do it right, but then there's a lot of things that do it really wrong. And consultation, like, yes, you wanna make this sure, I think the first step is, is do I have all the tools to tell the story? Um, if I don't, um, do I have someone to ask if I don't have the tools? And step number three is, is there someone better that can possibly help me make this the best it can be? But I feel like that last question, is this the best it can be, just doesn't get asked anymore in mainstream media. Right, because individuals don't want to think that maybe I am not the best person to do this, Mm -hmm. especially Mm -hmm. if you're, I don't know, at the height of your career in Hollywood. You probably are a person who thinks, no, I am the best person to tell this story in all cases. What what about you guys? What do you think? Mm, I mean, if I'm being real, I definitely value, (laughs) I definitely value when it's a story about someone of of the African diaspora being told by someone of the African diaspora, because we are the best people to tell our own stories. Now, I can admit that there have been people or storytellers of different races who've told very decent stories, but I feel like even whether someone of my own race makes a story about a black issue or whether something else, I just think it, you just have to really be accountable. Not everyone's gonna like them, not everyone's gonna be satisfied with it. But at least make it your power to have all of the tools. And if you're a white person and you want to tell a diverse story, hire people so that you make sure you have your ducks in a row and you really use every inch of your privilege to tell the story right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's like ultimately and unfortunately like a cost benefit thing. Like I think 
just the reality of the way um, media works is that like a bunch of stories just won't get told if you're waiting for the people who are living them to like have access mm -hmm. to the tools to tell them. So ultimately, uh, yes, I think like it has to be allowed. And I think like while I was listening to you answer, I was just thinking about stories um, of people in incarcerate like incarcerated people like they cannot make media about themselves right now. So like somebody outside of that community has to do it. Um, and yeah, I think it's just about being thoughtful, inclusive, accurate, true, <laughs> moral, ethical, like, you know, a good person. Um, but yeah, in a perfect world, yes, everyone should be able to represent themselves and where they come from. But this world sucks. <laughs> so <laughs> we're left with what we have. Thank God we still have public Seville. access TV for Exactly. Now. That's right. Um, all right. Down. The crew gives LaQuisha minus one million Angela Bassett's. Yes. Yes. Correct. Correct. Uh, thank don't you, guys. Don't even mention don't Angela don't Bassett's even. name anywhere. You're right. I am so sorry, <laughs> Queen <shit>. Angela. <laughs> I am so sorry. <laughs> Um, thank you guys for talking about this terrible film with me. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me. And that is the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to not go see Loquisha. You can also review Woman To Be Can iTunes and please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. What Went To BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Point Zolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 